Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan, along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Adam Levine. We'll talk about the U.S. Senate race in Mississippi in a minute. But first, from everyone at Words Matter, we want to send our sincere condolences to the entire Bush family on the passing of the 41st President of the United States, George H.W. Bush. Everyone at Words Matter was privileged to have served in the administration of President George W. Bush, number 43. Among the many perks and honors of that service was getting to know President Bush, number 41. I've spoken several times about being a Democrat from New York and having started my career on the staff of the late great Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Many of our listeners have asked how I can go from working for a Democratic senator to working for a Republican president of the United States. Well, I was warmly accepted into the Bush 43 world because George H.W. and Pat Moynihan shared a mutual respect and a sincere friendship, which lasted for more than 30 years. In January of 1993, as a young staffer, I was with Senator Moynihan and attended one of President Bush 41's last speeches in office at West Point. As the commander-in-chief shook the hand of every last cadet on that stage, Moynihan leaned over and said, Now that's a president. During my time in the White House, nothing was more fun than when number 41 was in town for a family gathering and would wander into my West Wing office on a Saturday afternoon. Full of energy, even in his late 70s, we would talk for a bit about baseball or he'd ask which reporters were giving us the most trouble. But he could never sit still. It wasn't long before he would leap up off my couch and say, come on, let's go say hello to some old friends and meet some new ones. I'd grab a bag of presidential trinkets and we'd make the rounds. He knew everyone in the building. He knew their names. He knew their families' names. He knew where they grew up and even little details about where they'd gone to college or which sports teams they followed. It wasn't contrived. It was who he was. Over the next week, you will hear a lot about the career, the life, and the legacy of George H.W. Bush. Pay attention. It's worth listening. After the services are over, Elise, Steve, and I will pay proper tribute to this extraordinary statesman. But for now, let's listen to President George H.W. Bush from his inaugural address. I take as my guide the hope of a saint. In crucial things, unity in important things, diversity, in all things, generosity. America today is a proud, free nation, decent and civil, a place we cannot help but love. We know in our hearts, not loudly and proudly, but as a simple fact, that this country has meaning beyond what we see and that our strength is a force for good. But have we changed as a nation, even in our time? Are we enthralled with material things, less appreciative of the nobility of work and sacrifice? My friends, we are not the sum of our possessions. They are not the measure of our lives. In our hearts, we know what matters. We cannot hope only to leave our children a bigger car, a bigger bank account. We must hope to give them a sense of what it means to be a loyal friend, a loving parent, a citizen who leaves his home, his neighborhood, and town better than he found it. 
And what do we want the men and women who work with us to say when we're no longer there? That we were more driven to succeed than anyone around us? Or that we stopped to ask if a sick child had gotten better and stayed a moment there to trade a word of friendship? No president, no government can teach us to remember what is best in what we are. But if the man you have chosen to lead this government can help make a difference, if he can celebrate the quieter, deeper successes that are made not of gold and silk, but of better hearts and finer souls, if he can do these things, then he must. America is never wholly herself unless she is engaged in high moral principle. We as a people have such a purpose today. It is to make kinder the face of the nation and gentler the face of the world. On Friday, Elise and I sat down and talked about that nasty U.S. Senate race in her home state of Mississippi. Look out, Jackson Town. So there was a lot going on in Jackson this week. Joining me today is our executive producer and my sometime co-host, Adam Levine. Adam also served in the White House for President George W. Bush. He was also a senior producer at NBC News and began his career with the late, great Daniel Patrick Monahan. Well, thank you, Elise. It's great to be here. Let's talk about Mississippi a little bit. Let's start with a recap of this year's midterm elections in the United States Senate in Mississippi. Why did we have two Senate races in 2018? In Mississippi. Well, Mississippi is one of my most favorite topics, though talking about this particular moment in Mississippi political history is a little painful because it was a really deeply wounding and terrible period for the state. And so just to kind of give the lay of the land, it was a really strange year because we had two Senate races. Our longtime senator, Thad Cochran, he finally resigned his seat. Everyone knew that it was imminent for a while because he was in poor health. And that gave Governor Phil Bryant the power to choose his hand-designated successor to appoint to the seat. And then whoever he appointed would have to run uh, in the race in a jungle primary on November 6th. And so... Governor Bryant chose to appoint Cindy Hyde-Smith. She was previously the agricultural commissioner, and she's one of the two highest-ranking Republican women in the state. The other is Lynn Fitch, the treasurer. He was under pressure to appoint a woman. Mitch McConnell had recommended that he appoint a woman. So at first with this appointment, I was heartened because it's a first. Cindy Hyde-Smith became the first female senator from the state of Mississippi. Over the course of a couple of months of watching her in office, it became pretty clear that she was just a rubber stamp for Donald Trump. Anything Donald Trump said, she was going to do. And I wonder if perhaps now that she's in office, that's going to change. I doubt it. But it certainly was a political strategy that a lot of candidates embraced and, this and, year. And this is for the open seat. So Roger Wicker didn't really have any challenge on his side. Exactly. But so Cindy Hyde-Smith is running for the special seat. And Roger Wicker had no competition because Chris McDaniel, the 
insurgent Republican candidate of sorts, was challenging Senator Wicker. But then when the open seat emerged, he decided that he would go for that. So Chris McDaniel switches into the special election. And then you have Roger Wicker is challenged by a Democratic state senator, Senator David Barria, with a really compelling personal story, very bright, a lot of energy, a lot of uh, policy-driven ideas. I found him to be an impressive candidate that the Democrats should have paid more attention to. But that is uh, a broader point with Mississippi that I will uh, make as I tell the story. But so we have these two separate primaries. Preconceived notion is of course, they're just going to run away with it. Mississippi is about the most red state in the country. Donald Trump is so popular, won by a huge margin. We didn't think that it was going to be much more than really sleeper races. But now, by the way, there was also a Democrat who decided to run former Clinton agricultural secretary. Well, exactly. So these two safe seats shifted a little bit when you had the former Secretary of Agriculture, Mike Espy, step into the race. Mike Espy was the first black congressman from the state of Mississippi elected since Reconstruct- Reconstruction in 1986. In his subsequent elections, he attracted a lot of crossover votes from white voters. And I know I'm already making a lot of racial distinctions in the way I'm talking about this, but that's the nature of a Mississippi election. They, It's one of the least elastic states in terms of voting across the aisle and it's very race racially driven in terms of how people vote. You have counties that are predominantly white, they go for Republicans, counties that are predominantly black, they go for Democrats. Mike Espy though jumps in and the race becomes a little bit more interesting because Mike Espy is so well known in Mississippi. His family is very prominent in the Mississippi Delta. He has more name ID than Cindy Hyde Smith. His grandfather started the first hospital for African-Americans in the 1920s in the Delta because he didn't want to see women giving birth in the cotton fields. His grandfather was an entrepreneur who also started funeral homes so that black people could have a proper burial. And really just a very well-known family. And Mike Espy had his prior background. Now, Mike Espy had some baggage. He had been indicted during the Clinton administration as Secretary of Agriculture for accepting gifts from uh, Tyson Food Company. Improper gifts, he was alleged to have accepted. He was acquitted. But he was acquitted. He was acquitted on all charges. It was a multi-million dollar trial. He went, you know, every day, I think it was something like seven weeks, and he was indicted. And since then, he really has been somewhat on a redemption tour, working with a nonprofit in Mississippi on food insecurity and doing, still staying very active in the state. And, and, and by the way, not only was Espy acquitted, but under the new Supreme Court ruling, uh, essentially uh, making bribery legal in the Virginia governor case, Espy probably wouldn't have even been indicted um, had it been uh, in, in, by modern standards. Exactly. So. But <clears throat> as the race tightened... That was the line of attack that Republicans were using against Mike Espy because he was appointed by the by Bill Clinton, associated with the Clintons. That carries significant baggage in a red, red, red state like Mississippi. And you went down. I remember it was the beginning, sort of the middle of September. You went down with uh, the Morning Joe crew back home to Mississippi, and two of those three candidates, first Mike Espy, 
were, were on the program, and you and uh, Professor Glout interviewed Secretary Espy later that day right here on Words, Words Matter. It was so much fun to get to go down and have the Morning Joe show from Oxford, Mississippi. Everyone came down, and you know, the night before, my mom came and went out to dinner with everyone, and of course, everyone was so sweet to her. Uh, Willie Geist was kind of a heartthrob, too, at the restaurant we went to in Oxford. And Joe did point her out, and he... uh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. And so then that morning, you know, they came. Our good family friends came, my youth group leader and the Episcopal priest in our town. They came to cheer me on, and they had to show up at around 2.30 a.m. because the time zone difference. And uh, and Joe did give my mom a, a big shout out, which was wonderful. But with that specific show... The candidates who accepted foreshadowed what the end of the race would be. So you have David Baria, the Democrat, running against Roger Wicker. He came and had a great showing. Mike Espy came and Chris McDaniel came. Cindy Hyde-Smith said she couldn't join. Roger Wicker said he couldn't join. They didn't participate. It was an interesting moment with Chris McDaniel that did a lot of damage to his campaign and was, quite frankly, embarrassing for Mississippi. Let's play that right now. I'm going to stand for that flag because the people have stood for it. So how would you speak to that 38 percent, those 38, 38 percent of this state? How I'm going to ask them. I'm going to ask them after 100 years, after 100 years of relying on big government to save you, where are you today? After 100 years of begging for federal government scraps, where are you today? We've been dead last for 100 years. 100 years. I mean the state of Mississippi. I talked about the state of Mississippi. We've been dead last for 100 years. Mm-hmm. And what happens is if we keep depending on that economic model, we're always going to stay last. And so, Elise, that guy with those views in 2018 and I, and I have to say your your pushback argument against him on the business aspects also drew a, a large round of applause talk about why those two things professor glatt's comments and uh, yours drew an applause in a mississippi crowd um, even 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 morning joe viewers but they're still all mississippians there I was really heartened by it because I could see how much Mississippi had changed in the 18 years since I had left because the Confederate flag was starting to be seen as something that was holding the state back when, you know, in the early 2000s when I left to go to college, it still was very polarizing. It still is polarizing now, but the argument has won that you know, even if people still have this, you know, entrenched affinity for the Confederacy, they realize it's bringing the state down and it's keeping us from attracting the kind of business that we need if our economy is going to grow. Because Mississippi, at the end of the Civil War, was the wealthiest state in the nation. And ever since then, we've been the poorest state in the nation. And the state's never really recovered. So Chris McDaniel, with his almost overt racism and I have to say, I was stunned to listen to Chris McDaniel talk like that anywhere in public in 2018. And I thought that the Mississippi GOP was opposed to him because of incendiary language like that. And then, whoa, did the last couple of weeks prove that wrong. It really was more of a personality conflict so, so, yeah, with so, Chris McDaniel and the power brokers within the Mississippi GOP because of the way he behaved when he challenged that Cochran back in 2014. And that was another, you know, 
famous story in Mississippi political history because it was a nasty election and ended up with, you know, pictures being taken secretly of Thad Cochran's very ill wife in the nursing home. And then the man, the supporter who took those pictures, ended up committing suicide. And then Chris McDaniel really wouldn't, he never conceded the race. And so the whole thing, there was a lot of lingering baggage from that. He was sort of Trump before Trump was Trump in terms of Playing that dog whistle. Now, I know in the state of Mississippi, politicians have played that dog whistle for a very long time. But Chris McDaniel, in addition to being a state senator, he was also a former radio talk show host who was very popular in the state of Mississippi. Am I right on that? Well, he had some kind of pro-Confederate radio show. I certainly never tuned in. But all that was very much out in the open. And people knew that. And while he had been more popular in 2014, really his behavior and then all of that had kind of baked in by this cycle. And he really wasn't emerging as a true contender against Cindy Hyde-Smith and much of a challenger. So it was it was pretty clear that the vote was going to be splintered between these three candidates, Hyde-Smith, McDaniel, and Mike Espy. And the population of Mississippi, just so people understand the demographics of Mississippi, 37 percent of uh, the residents of Mississippi are African-American. It's the highest percentage of African-Americans in any state in the country. And Mike Espy is a well-known – and again, you, you spend enough time in politics, we all get tarred with certain things. But even though he had baggage, he's a well-known, um, respected leader and particularly on the Democratic side. So you had these two candidates vying for the Republican for that section and you had Mike Espy. And there was no guarantee that both Republicans were going to make it into the runoff. Right. And Cindy Hyde-Smith was very much an unknown quantity. People, especially in the northern part of the state where I'm from, really didn't know her at all. She's from the south in Brookhaven. And we didn't get to know her very well throughout this campaign process because she was in a candidate protection program, which became very obvious after the runoff, and then the video came out of her making some pretty terrible comments. Let's talk about that for a second. So the the general election happens. Uh, There was a real debate whether McDaniel or um, Espy. We we all thought it was a a very good chance, but you never know with off-year elections. With uh, It's not a presidential year. And so it it wound up being Cindy Hyde-Smith, who, as you said, Mississippians didn't know all that well, Mike Espy, who they did know pretty well, but had that disadvantage of voter registration. This is a state that went 16 points for Donald Trump in uh, 2016. And so, as you said, from the electoral focus, the political junkie focus for the last few weeks since the election has been on this runoff. And on Tuesday, uh, we had the runoff. But let's start, I think it was within 24 hours of the general election being over, that, as you said, Cindy Hyde-Smith got herself in a little bit of trouble. Talk about what she said. It was recorded. I think it was a couple more days. It was okay. pretty It was pretty quick, though. So November 6th happens. Then November 27th, special election between Cindy Hyde-Smith and Mike Espy. And by that point in the game, fundraising, Cindy Hyde-Smith has probably raised about a million more. I think she's at around three million. Mike Espy's at around two. So they have another couple weeks to fundraise. Congress is out of session, so she's able to, you know, she's doing some events in Mississippi. And uh, an out-of-state blogger managed to get hold of a video with Cindy Hyde-Smith praising 
a friend at an event in Tupelo, Mississippi, Elvis's birthplace. And she says that she would do anything for him. She'd sit in the front row at a public hanging. And that came out. She made the comments prior to the jungle primary first election on November 6th. But it came out before the November 27th special. And then I started paying attention at that point as somebody who doesn't really have that much of a stake in a Mississippi election, but I'm always interested in any election, any place. And I I became very focused and I think a lot of people became very focused. There was a debate, I believe, not that long after that came out and she she gave an, a, she gave this thing that she termed an apology. Well, so here's see. the problem with how it played out. If she had just misspoken and used a really odd turn of phrase, and she was genuinely ignorant of why it's terrible to use such a phrase in the state where the most lynchings occurred after the Civil War through the Civil Rights era, over 600, according to some estimates, she should have just apologized, said she was ignorant, said she was going to educate herself and apologize for being insensitive. She gives this crummy, non-apology apology, and it keeps going on and on and on because she can't talk to the press. She's just not swift on her feet. She just said, keeps saying to congressional reporters, oh, I gave a statement. So it becomes a story about the statement, a story about the non-apology. Then finally, on the day of the only debate of the entire election— Because Mississippi hasn't had a Senate debate in 10 years, which is a travesty and unfair to the voters of Mississippi so that they can learn the views of the men and women who want political power over them and to represent them. Finally have a debate. The terms are very odd. There's no audience. Cindy Hyde-Smith is so tightly controlled by her campaign handlers. And then she gives her apology. And let's listen to that apology. And are you willing to explain and or apologize tonight? You know, at a campaign event, I had the opportunity to visit with a supporter who has a big piece of my heart. See, his mother and dad both died when he had of cancer when he was in high school. So, so to express my deep regard and my sincere commitment to this young man, I used a phrase. I told him that I would fight a circle song for him. Well, obviously, I would not stick my arm in a circle saw, nor did any of my comments ever mean that I would enjoy any type of capital punishment sitting there witnessing this. You know, for anyone that was offended for my, by my comments, I certainly apologize. There was no ill will, no intent whatsoever in my statements. I also recognize that this comment was twisted and it was turned into a weapon to be used against me, a political weapon used for nothing but personal and political gain by my opponent. That's the type of politics Mississippians are sick and tired of. Cindy Hyde-Smith is not the first Mississippi senator um, who put a spotlight on the state in this issue. This was in 2002. Trent Lott did the same thing. Talk about that just for just for a minute. You've got these two major political figures in Mississippi, white Mississippians, white Republicans, using incendiary racially charged language. And you add to that someone like me sitting in suburban New York City around the uh, the holidays, and I watched the news, and what came across was also pictures of Cindy Hyde-Smith in a 
Confederate uniform at some convention. And so you take. Well, it was she was down at Jefferson Davis's house. The president of the um, Confederacy. Yes, exactly. And she had a musket and then she wrote on Facebook, Mississippi history at its best. And then its, she. Now, here's that's the important thing at its best. And she also I. Uh, the tracker who caught her saying the public hanging, hanging comments later in the day, she also was videoed talking about voter suppression and joking about it, which also isn't funny in a state where a brave man named Vernon Dahmer paid poll taxes of African-Americans who wanted to vote. And because he did that, he had his house firebombed by the KKK. His children escaped alive. His wife escaped alive. He died in a hospital in a bed. His daughter severely burned in the other bed, his wife in the middle of the two beds, and he died. And Mississippi has a long history. People from my part of the country who in the 1960s tried to go down and register people to vote in the state of Mississippi. Uh, Freedom Summer, that uh, was what I wrote my history thesis about. Freedom Summer in my hometown, Holly Springs, was one of the headquarters. They would come to Holly Springs and then go down uh, Jackson and then down to Macomb and uh, all these different stops on... And people died. People died. It was dangerous. And so I think that Cindy Hyde-Smith's talking about the best of Mississippi history goes back to something else. And in 2002, I remember when uh, then Senate Minority Leader, about to be Senate Majority Leader, the Republicans had just won a couple of seats in the 2002 midterm, and he was about to be Senate Majority Leader. Trent Lott, your senator, made some comments about Strom Thurmond at his 100th birthday party. Talk about that for a minute and what that meant for Mississippi, the, the result. Anytime a major figure from Mississippi makes racially charged comments like that, racist comments, let's call it what it is, let's not mince words because words matter and it's racist, it repulses people from Mississippi, who outside of Mississippi, who they don't know the Mississippi that I love. They don't know the beauty and the great people and the charm and the character. They see the racism, as they should. It's terrible for our state. George W. Bush recognized that it was wrong, obviously. You know, Trent Lott was a powerful Republican leader, but George W. Bush didn't care. Oh, absolutely. I was working in the White House for President Bush um, in 2002 and was actually a part of the communications team. And um, Trent Lott had said about uh, Strom Thurmond that he was a great man, that he ran for when he ran for president, we all voted for him. And if we had voted for him, the world would have been a better place. We wouldn't have had all these problems. And as you said, the reaction inside the White House was not great. It, a few days later, it became clear that the president was going to have to say something on this issue. Um, he was going to a faith-based event in Philadelphia where there were a lot of uh, members of the cloth, uh, preachers from all parts of the country, and some of them happened to be black and some of them happened to be from Mississippi, and the president felt that he had to comment on this. Now, when presidents give comments like this, there's a few ways they can do it, and communications people like me try to help them do it. I will begin by saying uh, that we're not supposed – there's a sort of unwritten rule in Washington politics that we don't tell the advice that we give to presidents because then future presidents won't 
ask us for advice going forward. Well, considering who's serving in the White House now, I'm I'm fine with that. So, and, and Mr. President, forgive me if I am speaking out of school here, but we presented the president with three different options on how to do that. And the first one was you can take a you can take a question from the traveling press pool, and you've seen this a bunch of times with Donald Trump. He stands there and and waits for a question. And because this was the news of the day, we knew that would be a question. And that was my advice. Um, Dan Bartlett, because he talked to the president more recently, he thought that the pool was the right level, but that we should make a statement to the pool. And my reasoning was very simple. And I'm a New Yorker. I was a Democrat. I worked at NBC. And my reasoning was very simple. I read the tea leaves that Trent Lott was going to get down anyway. And I didn't think that it was the right thing for us to do politically given the fact that George W. Bush had two or six more years in office having to deal with Republicans in Congress, that he attacked Trent Lott from the podium and make a big, huge statement because people would say that that's why Trent Lott resigned. Well, we went in to see the president to give him our advice, and Dan told him that we suggested that he make a statement to the pool. The president just hit, sort of, just hit the button on his desk, and he said, uh, Ashley, uh, get me Gerson. And he looked at Dan and myself, and he said, I'm going to do this from the podium. <laughs> and, and Dan went to protest, and George W. Bush was a very uh, focused and committed guy, and he just looked at Dan and said, Dan, you heard what I said. And there was that silence that only standing in the old But it wasn't a question for President Bush what was the right thing to do, Absolute. even though it might have been more convenient to have someone who is a brilliant tactician like Trent Lott wielding his power on his behalf in the Senate. There was no question. There was no question he was going to say something. And not only was he going to say something, he was going to do it in the most public, high-profile way he could do it, which is when the national press is covering that speech live from the podium. Told us what he wanted, Dan and I, for the reasons that I stated, we, we, uh, we objected. And then he looked at me and said, what do you think? And I said, well, I agree with Dan. And not only that, I actually think I would take a question. I would, and I went through my reasoning. And he just looked at us and he said, guys, it's 2002. That shit's just wrong. I'm doing it from the podium. And that's, what a re- that's how a real president handles issues of racism, even in their party, even when there is something that's at stake for him or her. They stand up, they look the American people in the eye. And they tell them what they think. And George W. Bush said no. And Trent Lott resigned as majority. When I was talking to a Mississippi Republican about all of this the past couple of weeks, and I said, you know, George W. Bush would not have been behind this. He would not have backed enabling this behavior. Look at the ripple effect of what they started within Mississippi. It descended into... A conversation of the Mississippi GOP labeling Mike Espy as liberal, which he's not liberal. He's a very moderate Democrat. In fact, too moderate for national Democrats to really get behind him. If you want to compare the numbers of how much money he raised versus other Democrats. And the Mississippi Republican said, well, look at what happened with Lott. You know, we lost that important leader. And he was good for Mississippi. In terms of being able to bring home pork. But you know what? Who cares about pork if 38% of the people you represent are being discriminated and talked, spoken about in that way that is profoundly and deeply offensive considering the horrible legacy of our state? And Elise, I think that's a great point. Now, Elise, after this campaign got to a certain point, you you also got involved. You You wrote an op-ed. Talk about that for one minute about what you said, why you said it, and we'll get to the backlash in a minute. 
I just got angrier and angrier as I watched how it unfolded. And it had all taken me over the edge, but really the debate between Cindy Hyde-Smith and Mike Espy took me over the edge. And her, the liberal language, the nastiness, it was language that I had read in primary documents from the Citizens Council in Mississippi from the civil rights era. The language took on a different meaning than we hear that rhetoric all the time. It's you turn on Fox, you listen to right wing radio, you hear the liberal, dirty liberals, blah, 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 all of that, um, conservatives, this and that. The language, it just hit home in a way that I hadn't connected how much of the broader national political rhetoric is actually intrinsically linked to one of the worst eras of American history. No, I think that's right. And just talk about your column for one second, who you're writing it for and and all of that, because I think it's important. And I think what you said is important. And again, like I said, we'll talk about the backlash in a minute, but I want to set it up so that people who haven't read it can know what you said and why you said it. I have a voice. I'm lucky to have a voice. And I decided I should use it. So I wrote a column. I spent my Thanksgiving break just tormented over this and going back and reading a lot of Mississippi history that certainly didn't make it into the short column, but just being tormented by this and tortured by the past and tortured by what I want the present to be and what I feel Mississippi's future can be. So I wrote a piece from my perspective as right now, I guess you could say non-practicing Republican But a Republican who worked for President George W. Bush and Condoleezza Rice and Senator Rand Paul and why it was the right thing to do to not vote for Cindy Hyde-Smith, that it's not worth it to win a seat in the Senate for your party if you're winning it like this. And you made a great point in there that I really liked, which was you didn't attack her. You put it down to judgment which I thought was really important. And you said she had bad judgment, which I think that even somebody who wanted to be charitable about her remarks couldn't help but agree with. We all make mistakes. We do it here. Uh, You do it when you're on television. I've done it at different points in my life. But she's running for the United – she is currently a United States senator. She's running for the United States senator to uh, serve out the rest of the term. It's one thing to make a mistake. It's another thing to make a mistake and – not be willing to apologize, not being willing to admit you're wrong, not being willing to learn. And that's what she's completely unwilling to do. She, from the start of this entire debacle, she hasn't really apologized. And then that night at the debate, she had to look at her papers to read from her apology. Well, but this is, and I, to your point, I think that's a really interesting thing because I have to say, I've noticed a new dog whistle. Donald Trump does it. Cindy Hyde-Smith did it. And what they do is when they're – the code for reading for saying something and reading an apology that they don't agree with is they pick up a piece of paper and it's what John McCain, because he knew firsthand, would call the hostage statement. <laughs> That's how they do it. That's another one. So she's – I'm not sure if she couldn't – I mean she's a United States senator. You and I have both worked for senators. Even the most incapable can, rem- can remember a few I'm a sorry. Few lines. I know plenty of children – who are able to easily apologize. It's a very basic lesson. It's an incredibly important lesson because when leaders can't apologize, 
then that's when you go down terrible spirals of behavior that endangers the nation, quite frankly. And you look at Iraq, and we really didn't apologize quickly enough there and admit that things were off course in order to get them on course. I feel like this is a whole other conversation. And and for people who don't necessarily know you, you are modest. You didn't actually even send me a copy of that until I had seen it on Twitter. And uh, a lot of people on Twitter noticed, and somebody else also noticed your column. And and remind us where it appeared again. It was in the Clarion Ledger, which is the largest paper in Mississippi. And I was very psyched and flattered that they took it. And it got to run in that paper. And like I said, it got a lot of notice. And somebody else, Roger Wicker, who you had had on. Yes, also he interviewed was here. Uh, in my grandmother's living room eating pound cake with, with us. Tell it. Just, uh, let's back up for one second because I want to set this up in terms of your relationship with Senator Wicker. You were in Mississippi a couple times during this election. And in addition to interviewing Secretary Espy, you also interviewed Roger Wicker for um, Words Matter. I did because he had been at my church First Baptist Church in Holly Springs doing a little roundtable speaking event in the run-up to the campaign. And I'd asked him for an interview, and he agreed. And so he came up to the house. Uh, Very kind of him to spend the time. But it was an awkward interview because of my decision to ask him his feelings as a Christian about Donald Trump and Donald Trump's language. So you write this op-ed. Like I said, it got a lot of notice. It was and it was wonderfully written, wonderfully reasoned, and an important topic. And Senator Wicker noticed to the point where the very next day, in the same paper, he had his own op-ed. A day or two later, he had his own op-ed, and he name-checked me, which I wouldn't have advised you to do, because you're a senator. You're way more important. Don't elevate me to your level, but hey, thanks, I'll take it. And made the distinction that I now work for MSNBC. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he said. And that was something that in the interview, when I was asking questions that he didn't like, he was saying, well, you're asking that because you're a journalist. It didn't matter our shared cultural background. Asking a question like that put me on the other side. And you can see how that also played out within the Mississippi GOP, their language and their attacks on the press for reporting Cindy Hyde-Smith's background and statements. Absolutely. And a couple of times during that interview with uh, Senator Wicker, I noticed he pointed out um, whether it was talking about talent like you, but he was very pointed to make sure that he knew that the people who were listening knew that you had left Mississippi and that you lived someplace else and worked for the national media. And he pointed that out. I'd be very curious if he does that all the time to Haley Barber. I kind of don't think he does. What do you think? I don't don't think. I wonder if the Mississippi GOP, if they belabor (laughs) how Haley left and made millions as a lobbyist in Washington, all the time. When he's home, if that's really an issue. But, you know, whatever. I'm sure it's just uh, they mean it as a compliment. And and I have to say, I, I loved the way he said, and I want to read it. He says, I appreciate Elise's opinion as a native Mississippian. It's almost certainly Miss Jordan's opinion was well received at her employer, MSNBC, where support for Hillary Clinton was virtually unanimous during the last presidential election. And so I have to ask you, at least, did you do this to please your bosses no. at MSNBC? In fact, I was very careful of my wording just because, I, you know, we don't endorse candidates You can put out a point of view. I'm a commentator. I'm an analyst. I can share my analysis of what the best path would be. 
but we don't I don't endorse candidates. And I thought that was great in this in the sense of you'd clearly made them nervous enough that Senator Wicker and his staff felt the need to respond. So unfortunately, on Tuesday, Cindy Hadsmith was elected to fill the term for the next two years. That they have to run for that seat again in 2020. Talk a little bit, Elise, about your feelings about the election, how it played, the possibilities of change, and what do you see for Mississippi going forward? Cindy Hyde-Smith won by about eight points, which is t- a terrible showing for the Mississippi GOP, a terrible showing for her. Donald Trump won by 16 points. There right. was not much enthusiasm for her. I got so much positive feedback for my column from people saying, oh, we just we agree with you. We just don't like her. We think she doesn't have good sense, as my mama says. She just doesn't seem like she has good sense. <laughs> uh, you know, I heard that a lot, but people couldn't vote for a Democrat and they couldn't necessarily make that swing in a state where. Being Republican and the judges that Republicans will appoint on your behalf in Congress is such a big deal. And there's been so much national backlash calling Mississippians who voted for Cindy Hyde-Smith racist. And I think it's missed the broader point of what happened a bit. Mike Espy ran a very strong campaign with very limited resources, about $2 million until, you know, the interim period when, after Cindy Hyde-Smith's comments, he started to get more support from outside of Mississippi. Mississippi is a very poor state. There aren't that many Democratic voters. And, and, and also in this cycle. Democratic, support, right. Democratic donors. And his, yes, and so people, he did not have an influx of outside money. That was one critique. Oh, he's getting money from Soros and Pelosi and... Uh, and, and he wasn't. And in, well, he did. He got. I mean, the Soros is maxed out. George and his son, twenty seven hundred. But compared to the super PACs that were operating right. on Cindy Hyde, so she had an advantage. She outspent him three to one. And she. This was a cycle where the Democrats had to defend ten Senate seats where Donald Trump had won that state. It was the least favorable map, and this was one of them. So he didn't receive all that. He much didn't money. get much support. But I think there's a racism to that. That. Democrats outside of Mississippi don't want to address. They think that there's no way it's going to happen, that the seat is so entrenched that they don't even try. And it's such a shame and it makes me sad that they have written off some of the most poor and most vulnerable people in the country who are suffering because the GOP leadership that is now at the head of the state rejected Probably what would be tantamount to about a billion dollars in health care for the people of our state. We have hospitals closing all over the state. It's a medical crisis. And this is the decision that Governor Phil Bryant made. And so the Democrats just see this territory when there's Republican leadership that should be challenged. And I think that there's a racism to that when they're donating. You know, you looked at Missouri, Claire McCaskill spent about $33 million. Indiana, $13 million on that race well, and, and, Joe and, Donnelly. And, and then you go back to... Heidi Hetkamp, though, that was... She raised around $27 million. Mike Espy, $2 million. Well, and in, if you think about all the money that went into the special election in Alabama the year before for Doug Jones, um, now, Mike Espy was able to get, like you said, within eight points with no money, 
And let's face it, as terrible as Cindy Hyde-Smith is on a bunch of issues, she's no Roy Moore. So he was still able to get fairly close again. She's no Roy Moore, although she is one of the weakest Senate candidates I've ever observed in modern politics. No, I think that's right. Just in terms of comments aside, that was it is disturbing that Mississippi is sending someone to represent the state who will not take basic questions from journalists. I mean, did you see that clip of her running away? All of that said, Elise, do you have hope that uh, Mississippi in 2020, 2022, 2024, do you think that the tide, even though it was a loss, did it, did it look like, uh, again, a state that was won, has been won by Republicans by double digits? How much did Wicker run by, win by? Roger Wicker won his seat 58% to David Barria's 39%, which is a hell of a showing on Barria's part, considering that he didn't have any outside support either. But, you know, the lines are pretty racially polarized the way people are voting in Mississippi. I'm hopeful because Mike Espy dared to put his hat into the ring and run a real race because David Barria dared to run a real race and to challenge the entrenched status quo and to say that we can do better for the people of Mississippi. That inspires me. I'm inspired that so many Mississippians did cross party lines and vote for Mike Espy. You know, when I went off to Yale, I wrote an opinion piece about a high school classmate who was photographed in blackface at Ole Miss. And I wrote a column about how awful that was. And perhaps that was mean to the classmate, but the classmate did it and the opinion holds. But I was really quite a pariah for writing that. And it was online and Comments on the message board just saying things like, you can't go home again. You'll never be welcome here. Just for expressing an opinion that blackface was wrong. Gee, how radical. This column, I got so much positive response from people saying, thank you for saying that. We agree. We don't want any part of this. It was 18 years and it's not. The pace of change is way too slow. And I am upset that the outcome wasn't different and that the goodness of the people I know wasn't reflected in the vote and in the outcome. But it is progress. And it's just frustrating because it's progress that shouldn't be slow because it's so fundamental to human dignity and who we are as people. And that's why I'm more inspired and energized than I've been in a long time to work for this kind of change and to help make sure that everyone's voice and votes are counted. To be continued. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.